Um, just a couple of things. Uh, hey, give alms. We're working with giving alms. You gave $1,000 last week. That's five times what you're normally good. Give, well done. So five times times 1000 would be 5000 So if you keep the curve, you want to keep the curve, you know, lower left, you know, upper right. You want to keep going. So uh, last week that, that'll go to Spain. The new, you know, Arthur Just, the new bishop of Spain. Call the bishop when he comes. He'll enjoy that. Uh, we'll that one in Spain. Let's go for... Um, uh, Pastor Lowe's at downtown, the soup kitchen, you know, Grace Little Village, they need food, they need heat, uh, so if you got a few bucks then that would be great. Um, I don't want to take Dr. Wesley's time, I won't introduce him again because you've heard it a couple of times, but I do want to thank him, and then I'm going to ask you this, that you pray for him specifically for the rest of Lent. I know you take the prayers very seriously, I know that many of you have a list of things you pray for, add it to the list, you know, in a very busy time, for him, about He's come out of retirement to help the church. We're grateful for that. So, you know, every day from now till Easter, and then you keep going if you like, just remember Dr. Wesley and his wife and the work that he does for the faith. Um, it's a great gift for you here. You know, we're always so happy. I'll tell you, too, it's good for the pastor. You know, we have somebody that we can talk to who's, you know, farther along than we are and can give us good counsel. And it's very helpful because we can say things like, hey, we've been thinking about this, or what do you think we should do here, or is this really reliable, or is there something what we're missing? It's very, very good for the pastor. When, when he comes, or when Dr. Just comes, or when Dr. Klein comes, when you guys come, it's very helpful, not just for you, but for us, but we're very grateful as well. So, Dr. Wesley, please, we love you wherever you are. There you are. Thank you. what a pleasure it is to be with you and what an honor and I want to say something uh, while he's still here you know when I was the uh, president of the seminary uh, the I'm, I'm having trouble with these mics so <laughs> the, uh, I tried to get him and woo him to uh, be a professor at our seminary we offered him trips to Europe to Hawaii uh, Arthur just offered him a bottle of unblended scotch each month, and he said, I need to stay at St. John's. I, I love this place. So that's a credit to him. And I really... Please don't ask him again. <laughs> and uh, I, what I enjoy so much, too, is uh, the way you have served the gospel and our Lord by the beautiful sanctuary that uh, you have uh, put together uh, with such focus on baptism and the Lord's Supper and the living voice of Jesus through the scriptures and the liturgy. It's a, a pleasure to worship with you, and, and uh, I'll uh, be back because I want to come back when your windows are in. And uh, <laughs> see, and I'll bring my wife with me. Uh, it'll be a rich experience for both of us. Uh, what I'd like to, to dwell on with you a little bit this morning is the whole theme of, of Lent is uh, uh, tied to what uh, Paul writes in Philippians 2, how Jesus left the glory of the Father and humbled himself, in fact, the original says he emptied himself to become our Savior. And when you can imagine, uh, and it's, I think, even hard for us to imagine the wonder and the beauty of God's presence. We uh, see it in Jesus, and we anticipate seeing it fully when we are with God. 
but the wonder and the beauty of God's presence is something that uh, is remarkable. And for Jesus to leave that and to come to this earth in a remote part of the Roman Empire that was uh, viewed by the Romans if they had a legion that had performed uh, poorly or wasn't in the Caesar's favor, they were often sent uh, to the Holy Land because the Jews had a remarkable record of resisting and creating difficulties for uh, foreign powers. And so Jesus comes to that place because of the promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, uh, that the Messiah would come through that family and be a blessing to all nations. What I wanted to uh, share with you is kind of some of the concrete details that that uh, entails. And uh, it's a remarkable blessing that I've enjoyed Two summers, I had the privilege of digging at Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum, of course, was Jesus' headquarters for his ministry. We read about his birth. We see him at the age of uh, 12 or so when he goes to the temple. But then he begins his formal ministry by coming from Nazareth down to Capernaum. And... uh, I dug there for two summers. Uh, Incidentally, if you're into fitness, you might volunteer for a dig. Uh, Both summers, one summer I lost 18 pounds, the next uh, summer 19 pounds (laughs) because uh, you're out digging all day and you're eating cucumbers and olives. It's it's a a wonderful combombination. And uh, the... uh, But... uh, just to you know, kind of give you a feeling, when uh, I arrived, uh, and the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level, so we would begin digging at 6 a.m. in the morning, and normally, this is June, July, August, normally by 9 o'clock in the morning, it would pass 100 degrees. So it was a very uh, demanding environment. We had to force fluids because your body gets dehydrated in that kind of uh, temperature with the desert winds blowing in uh, from the horns of our bell. Uh, It's uh, remarkably uh, challenging in the hot of the summer. And uh, that alone kind of reminded me, you know, Jesus walking and preaching and teaching in this environment had to experience, as we read in the Gospels, fatigue, and he experienced danger. There were uh, all kind of uh, armed groups in Galilee during his lifetime, and if you go uh, to Israel today, there are still all kind of armed groups there. <laughs> in fact, I'll just insert the, uh, in 85, the first year I was there, uh, there had been a, uh, a Mer- uh, U.S. TWA Airlines uh, flight uh, hijacked to Beirut, and that was 58 miles north of where we were digging, and the Israelis uh, thought the uh, government was going to ask them to rescue the Americans. Uh, so for two days, we watched uh, Israeli jets come down the Jordan Rift across the Sea of Galilee, and then they'd go uh, vertical, 
And then we'd hear this boom, boom. They were getting ready to invade Lebanon. So for a couple days, my prayer life improved greatly. <laughs> uh, I even carried my plane tickets to the dig. <laughs> <laughs> Because I thought if they start coming this way, I'm heading for uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. <laughs> you <know? laughs> but, uh, you know, in Jesus' day, uh, we know that uh, a contingent of Roman soldiers were positioned there. The gospel tells us about the centurion. Capernaum was a, a small village, probably in the neighborhood of uh, eight to 900 at Jesus' time. It was barely, fairly small. But it was on a, a crossroads. It was kind of a trade route along the Sea of Galilee. And the Romans had positioned these uh, soldiers there to influence and to keep uh, trade uh, flowing. So Jesus uh, goes there and calls the disciples. And one of the first day on the dig, uh, this is uh, kind of an illustration of how fully Jesus became one of us, and experience what we experience. Uh, the head archaeologist got us aside and he said, um, be careful, the site that we're digging on has a lots of scorpions. And uh, so he said, the uh, practice is, if you see a scorpion, execute it. And so, um, you know, I hadn't seen any scorpions in Fort Wayne, Indiana. <laughs> and, uh, and it was about uh, two days, and I was uh, digging and uh, enjoying the view of the Sea of Galilee when suddenly uh, a scorpion advanced uh, who didn't like Lutherans. He was uh, <laughs> looking very uh, inhospitable, and I, I had that shovel and with great energy, I executed it. And they actually, when I told my neighbor, he said, let's get everyone over to look at this scorpion. It was probably five or six inches long. And then I thought, you know, remember the saying of Jesus, who of you, if your child asks for bread, would give him a scorpion? Now, isn't that a remarkable use of that environment you know, Jesus is using what the people knew to teach them and to teach them about God's goodness. And uh, that's one way in which, as the summer went on, I thought more and more about uh, how remarkable God's love is that he came to this place and not, uh, you know, the beauty of Rome uh, which was spectacular, uh, or Athens in his period would have been, you know, like Chicago, uh, great high culture. It was more like going to a little ha town in Appalachia, if we'd use an analogy with uh, our American situation. And um, what we did there, and, and this is uh, a very, I think, interesting thing that for a while, archaeology was just uh, go and dig and find whatever you can. So especially, now I come from a, a German ancestry, and the Germans were some of the most aggressive. When they would find a tail, 
you know, a tell is basically the Aramaic word for hill. And in Israel, you have all of these. You'll be going through the countryside, and suddenly there'll be a mound like that. And often in that mound is the remnants of cities, layers of habitation. And so, for example, at Shechem, the Germans just brought in bulldozers and bulldozed. Well, when you do that, you uh, erase all the history. It's, it's all kind of pushed together. So after some experiences that weren't so positive in uh, the 1800s, archaeologists developed what they called the wheeler Kenyon method of archaeology. And uh, this is the way it works. If I can draw, what you do is you uh, have a square. And let me see if I can get a marker that's a little, a little darker here so you can see. Uh, you put down a square that's uh, five meters on a side. So, uh, you know, a little longer than 15 feet. And you lay it out on the top of the ground with string, usually. And the head archaeologist, this, this is fascinating to me, he would go and look around this really just a dirt field. And one of the signals he was looking for was three stones that were aligned in a row. If you look, you know, kind of at Mother Nature, rarely does it drop three stones that are perfectly in a row. And he would uh, put this square in, across that line. We would dig down, and there would be a wall. It's a fascinating way to uh, discover a wall that's mostly buried. But then we would, uh, what you do is you begin to work downward, straight uh, downwards, and uh, let's see if I can get a little more ink out of this here. Uh, it, if you see, it's a, what you do is you go down, let's try the blue, and uh, <laughs> see, uh, you just, you come down, oh, this is wonderful, <laughs> you, <laughs> you come down like this and that, so you just want to descend as sharply as you can, and each layer then, as you go down, you remove layers of dirt. And what is fascinating is the technology from that period is pottery. So, for example, if someone a thousand years from now is digging down in an American uh, kind of... Uh, archaeological site, if they come across a cell phone, oh, well, now we are at what year? You know, they know when cell phones are invented. Then they maybe they dig down and they get a, a microwave. So now they can identify what uh, level that is. And they dig down a little farther and they discover a, uh, you know, a Model T Ford tire or something like that. You know, it's, it's very kind of uh, accessible. Well, in this place, in Capernaum, what we discovered is there were layers of habitation. So the 
top kind of uh, dirt was more recent. But as we went down and you got down to around 1200 A.D., you encountered something called Marmaluke pottery. It's Turkish pottery and of a particular design, like, like Tupperware or, uh, you know, uh, they've got their own design. In fact, uh, I, I'll share this. When I was at the seminary, I um, was always looking for a part-time job, and uh, one fellow seminarian said, well, you should sell wherever pottery or, or wherever um, cookware, cookware. And so I went to this seminar to learn how to be a wherever salesperson. And uh, it was pretty sad because they, you know, this whole fancy set of pots and pans was like 1600 of which like $800 was profit. It was a huge, and then they would teach us little tricks like when you're, you know, it's trying to sell to a young lady who's engaged, polish that pan up and put it out, and she's going to reach for it but draw it back, and, sh you know, she'll want to buy that. <laughs> you don't let her touch it. I mean, it was, it, it was uh, so manipulative. I just said, I, I'm going to go and cater on weekends. I don't, I don't you know. <laughs> But, but uh, the, uh, the reality here is, is right about that time we had this Turkish pottery. And then uh, as we went down into the 800s and 700s, we discovered another form of Turkish pottery. And, and it's a really uh, a remarkable difference. It was just a different uh, technology that they used, a different design. And that level was called Umayyad pottery. And uh, then uh, what got very interesting is right about 600, we began encountering Byzantine pottery. And here's uh, something that's fascinating because uh, we know that the Holy Land uh, from really about 312 to 600 uh, was Christian. It, it, there were uh, lots of churches there. And tragically, when the Islamic armies came, they wiped out the, the Christian population, and that's why their pottery begins to replace the Byzantine pottery, which was a part of the Byzantine uh, Empire and uh, was a time of great uh, flourishing for the Christian church. We went even further down, and below the Byzantine pottery, you begin to find Roman pottery. And uh, Roman pottery is divided into two epochs, namely uh, the uh, uh, late uh, Roman pottery, which is, is roughly about uh, 100 A.D. to 250 in that period. And what we were especially interested in was get to the early Roman pottery, which is the time when our Lord would have been there and uh, done his ministry. Uh, the uh, work continued, and uh, as we got down to the New Testament period, what we found was uh, small houses and small uh, little lanes that went uh, parallel to the Sea of Galilee. Some went down into it, 
And then uh, we discovered a very interesting uh, kind of channel of uh, pottery and stones that seemed to be uh, a place where lots of water had flown, uh, flowed. So we started following that down, and right adjacent to the Sea of Galilee, we discovered a Roman bath. And uh, how many of you have hot tubs? Is that a popular thing? Well, a Roman bath, it was, it was beautifully laid out and constructed, basically had uh, three rooms, and it basically went from a cold kind of uh, like a small swimming pool to warm uh, to hot. And what we led us to that is all kind of, kind of uh, plumbing and pottery that flowed that way. So this was uh, a uh, verification that the Roman soldiers had been there. And a very uh, interesting thing, they uh, were, uh, throughout the Roman Empire, uh, dedicated to uh, bathing. They they thought this was a a mark of civilization. And so uh, this uh, is uh, a very... A wonderful thing to to find, and uh, I might just share that uh, some of the German scholars I think smoke too many cigars or uh, otherwise get confused because for years they were saying uh, there is no evidence in the Latin literature that has survived of Pontius Pilate. And they were right because we had lots of uh, Latin literature, Cicero and Virgil and Seneca, all those things. And so they were making a a big deal that uh, this part of the gospel was fiction. Well, then uh, down along the Sea of Galilee, a farmer was plowing in the um, uh, 40s and came across a big stone that kind of stopped his plow. And there, when he unearthed it, was a big sign Pontius Pilate, <laughs> which is another kind of, I think, an indication of how trustworthy. Here you have a Roman bath and a Roman inscription that uh, verifies, it doesn't prove the Bible, the Bible is true in and of itself, but it uh, shows that, in fact, it's uh, describing history and real people and real places. Now, one of the uh, two little episodes I wanted to share is uh, we found on uh, one year, the second year, a skeleton. And that's an interesting process because when uh, that was uncovered by one of the archaeologists, three of us were chosen to uh, continue digging there and everybody else was kind of uh, kept at a distance because nearby in Tiberias, there's an ultra-Orthodox Jewish community. And if they hear of any bones being uncovered in uh, the Holy Land, they will try to uh, protest and, uh, through legal appeals, stop the digging because they believe that's desecration. So I named him uh, John of Capernaum. And uh, every day we unearthed John and had a little kind of uh, canvas that we surrounded the earth. And we went real slowly because when you find a skeleton, you may find uh, jewelry or coins or other uh, valuables. 
And we took about three days to uh, unearth him, and every night we would cover him up again so no one was aware of what was happening. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't uh, find anything significant, but then we put the bones in a box and sent them to Jerusalem, where they were analyzed, and he turned out to be about uh, 31 years old, and they dated him to roughly about uh, the 500s, you know, that he was uh, living about that time. So that that was an interesting little thing. I thought, uh, oh boy, maybe this is uh, one of the disciples of the apostles. Maybe there's a big sign here, like Papias. And my word, if I find those bones and I talk about this, we'll all be famous. But it was uh, more of an anonymous person. But I, I can say I actually found one thing that was, was valuable. Uh, I was digging down a wall in one of these little village rooms, and uh, suddenly a uh, round object appeared. It was about an, a foot and a half in uh, diameter, and it was a, what they called a portable millstone. Have you seen these uh, big millstones? They're as big as a table, and they have animals that, you know, push them around. Well, this was evidently uh, a fairly rare uh, technology in the archaeology of Israel where a woman could take this and just move it with her hands on another hard object and could actually mill some grain. And uh, that came to mind... Uh, And and here I still, uh, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask this question because remember when Jesus says, if anyone offends one of these little ones, one of these children, and it's so great to see all these children in your church. I just rejoice in that. If someone offends one of those, it would be better that a millstone be put around his neck and he be thrown into the sea. Remember, Remember that saying? Well, I've always thought that's, you know, how would you put that big a millstone, a big, huge thing around his neck? So it might be that Jesus has in mind this smaller version of the millstone that probably weighed, oh, uh, 50 pounds or so. And that, too, would uh, be, you know, sufficient to take someone to the bottom, but it wouldn't be as mammoth as the the typical uh, kind of uh, millstone that we uh, think of. So that that was another thing I thought, you know, this is uh, so helpful to understand uh, what Jesus experienced in his headquarters there in Capernaum. Uh, One other little episode, then I'll throw it open to any any questions you have. Oh, oh, I should mention this. Uh, Three of us... Uh, got a reputation for being uh, uh, earth movers. We we uh, really were helpful to the uh, head archaeologist, uh, Vasilius Zephyrus was his name, the only Christian in the Department of Antiquities. He spoke four or five languages, and uh, he liked three of us because if he wanted to move a lots of dirt, we had developed that capacity. And uh, so he would tell us, you know, Last year, uh, we were digging, 
in an area just like this, and we found 300 Turkish coins worth about, uh, he said, $800,000. So you think, where's my shovel? Let me start digging, you know. <laughs> this, this is exciting. But what we learned is after about two weeks of that, it was simply a motivational speech, you know. <laughs> so uh, one day after digging and sweating and, and not finding anything, I uh, was overcome in a moment of weakness with some mischief. And I, uh, I had here a piece of, of old pottery. And uh, what we would do, we'd dig till 2 in the afternoon, and then we'd spend about an hour to 2 reading pottery, saying, you know, which period is it from, uh, what type of pot does it belong to. And I might, <laughs> might mention this. Uh, if you found a, a pot that was in good shape, that's immediately set aside, dated, and sent to Jerusalem, so so that any really good uh, remaining pottery, uh, the government uh, takes, and we did have some early Roman pottery. So in theory, it's possible that Jesus or his uh, apostles would have used some of that pottery. But ninety-five percent of the time, what you do is find these little pot shirts. So I was tired. And we were going to uh, read pottery for the next hour and a half. So I wrote in Hebrew, unpointed Hebrew, Beit Yeshua, and covered it with dirt and tried to make it look old. And that means uh, house of Jesus. And... And I took it and I just slipped it in the pottery. So, so we are, Basilius uh, Zephyrus, he's a, he's a marvelous man and a Christian. He's a wonderful chanter in Greek. And uh, so he's working through the pottery and he finally gets down to that piece. He looks at it and I think he said bad things in every language he knew. <laughs> Because this, this is called contamination. That is, you're, you're contaminating uh, some of the evidence, and that's a no-no. So I repented. Uh, he absolved me uh, reluctantly, but he did, because he wanted me to dig more the next day. <laughs> but it's, it's, and he has written, uh, his name is spelled T-S-A-F-E-R-I-S. We had him speak at the seminary. He's written several articles on Capernaum as the home of Jesus. And uh, if you visit in the future, the seminary regularly runs annual trips there, uh, the site is divided into two different uh, sections. One section is owned and run by the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, they have some marvelous ruins. They believe they have the house of St. Peter there. They definitely have uh, the foundation of the synagogue that Jesus would have been in. 
So it was uh, a very uh, wonderful thing to see their side. Where I was digging was on the Orthodox side. After World War II, the holy sites were divided between the Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. So if you get to the Holy Land, uh, it would be wonderful to have you look through the Roman side, which has been developed by the Roman Catholic Church very fully, and I think accurately, but also peak, there's a wall that they built down to kind of divide the two sections. If you peek over uh, this side, you'll see where we're, we were digging. It's not nearly as uh, tourist-friendly, and if you walk over there, uh, look out for scorpions, but uh, it's kind of rough still. There's a little uh, Orthodox chapel there, and it's a wonderful thing. Uh, Maybe one other little feature that you would enjoy is uh, after about three or four weeks uh, of working out in the sun and uh, forcing fluids, and uh, you you really start to feel like Rambo. Uh, Losing all that, you know, kind of extra weight and then lifting rocks and, uh, oh, it was, yeah, it was, you really started to feel good. And so one of the other diggers, who was a pious Roman Catholic, we decided Jesus probably uh, walked from Capernaum to Tiberias. It's about uh, eight miles. And we should do that just to see what that would be like. And uh, so we had dug all morning, and then we uh, got a couple canteens, and when we left, uh, the temperature was about 108. But we were, we were acclimated. You know, we thought, we can do this. So we hike along the Sea of Galilee. And we were about two-thirds the way there. And uh, we ran out of water. So uh, uh, we made a very, uh, uh, I think, wrong decision. We thought, we'll take a shortcut over the hill to get to Tiberias. Well, you got over the hill, and you got into the the desert kind of hillocks, and and it became a kind of a maze, and we were dehydrating fairly fast. I remember uh, we rested under a shade tree, and when we walked for a while, you could hear, you know, your heart thumping, because it was just physically more than we should have attempted. And just about the time uh, we were, I think, uh, getting near to some serious issues, uh, an Israeli patrol pops over the top with a machine gun. <laughs> and and uh, they basically rescued us. They, we told them what we had done, and they said, hop in the Jeep, we'll get you back and give you some water. Now, the reason I bring that up is our Lord lived in a, an environment that wasn't... Uh, uh, friendly. You had to know and pace yourself. And in Lent, we see, you know, how fully he was human and how he suffered on our behalf and the whole context in which he uh, worked uh, would have, uh, you know, demanded a, a really uh, fully human life. Uh, he couldn't, he wasn't sitting in a a nice office somewhere, but he was out with people who were struggling, and in that context, 
he was the light of the world, uh, you know, making water at, at Cana or making wine at Cana, uh, uh, healing the sick. And uh, it's a wonderful, uh, his miracles must have stood out in that environment uh, for their beauty and the fact that he was uh, God's son. Let, let me pause and get any questions or any volunteers you want to go. We'll uh, s- put up a new, uh, a new group. Any, any questions? Yes. Okay, good. Our, our deepest uh, kind of uh, thing went down about 25 feet, and that's where you hit kind of the... Uh, you know, virgin soil, where, where we weren't getting any more pottery. There wasn't any evidence of habitation. Now, other places, uh, like at Hebron or at other sites, Megiddo, you can keep digging, and you can actually go down to about 2000 B.C., the Bronze Age. So Capernaum was a fairly new little village, and uh, we... That's as far as we could find any habitation, you know. Uh, Since I've been there, they have found other villages uh, at Bethsaida, at uh, Hippos. Uh, The uh, Galilee was known as the Decapolis. Uh, This is something you might enjoy. When Alexander the Great conquered uh, the Holy Land and other countries, he wanted to convert everyone uh, to be Hellenized, to become like the Greeks. And his strategy, what, you can go everywhere and see these ruins. He had three things he tried to establish in every city. One is what they called an agora, that is a shopping center or marketplace. Secondly was an amphitheater where they performed plays and the great Greek uh, dramas and culture. Uh, The third was the gymnasium for the sports. And if you look at our culture and you say, if you take the shopping centers, if you take sports, and if you take the uh, entertainment uh, industry, don't a lots of people shape their lives around those three things? I mean, and so these ten cities of Galilee had, many of them have these little amphitheaters, uh, also in Asia Minor or t- modern Turkey. So there was in the ancient world an effort uh, to Hellenize uh, the Jewish population. And um, this is a good Lutheran group, so I can say this. Uh, there are two beers in Palestine. Uh, you get a free trip if you can tell me what they are. <laughs> well, they, it, the first one is Bud, Budweiser. Budweiser. <laughs> and, uh, and it's spelled in Hebrew. So the other one is called Maccabee beer. And in the Apocrypha, you know, you have the record of the Maccabees. And the Maccabees were uh, kind of the, uh, the Missouri Senate part of the Jewish uh, nation. They, they wanted to stay with the fathers. They wanted to not Hellenize, to not liberalize. And so in uh, 165 B.C., uh, there was a, a liberal uh, leader, Antiochus Epiphanes, who 
decided to offer pigs in the temple to desecrate it. And uh, Judas Maccabeus rose up, killed him, and he and his son started a revolution. They prevailed. So for a hundred years, the Maccabees and their family reigned, and the Greeks nor the Romans ruled uh, the Jews. And in that period of independence, uh, uh, lots of people thought the Messiah will come soon. And this is where in the Gospels, remember how some of the Jews want to come and make Jesus king? I think that's because they remembered that period of independence from about 150 down to about 60 uh, B.C. Uh, They enjoyed uh, independence. And so when Jesus was performing his wondrous works, uh, there were those who said, this is the Messiah, and he will restore us to our independence, to our prominence. And Jesus had to resist that interpretation that he had come to save, uh, not uh, to, uh, uh, you know, elevate the Jewish nation to rule over the whole world. He had come to save the whole world, and uh, that was a part of the context in which uh, they were living. In fact, later, a a Jewish uh, young soldier rose up, and he called himself Son of the Star, and uh, in 132 A.D. uh, started a revolt against the Romans, pretending that he was the Messiah that they should follow. So it's, it's a wonderful story. If I could, I would take you all to Israel for two weeks. And we just have fun. Uh, I, you know, uh, I can say this. When I was in office, a part of my calling was to raise funds. And uh, I, uh, God blessed our efforts. But I always thought I should do more. And one day my wife had sent me grocery, grocery shopping. And so uh, I got milk and whatnot. And uh, when I got my change, I had four quarters. And I looked, and the Powerball was $340 million. <laughs> so I thought, oh, boy, could I? Oh, I could build a library. I could do all this. So I went and bought one Powerball. <laughs> well, I made the mistake of telling my wife. <laughs> I would be so embarrassed. If a seminary president, if you won the Powerball. <laughs> so so I, I've never done it again. I, 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 would, I, I value my life too much. <laughs> but uh, any other questions? I guess uh, we're, we're about at time, or is it, I guess it's time to. Yeah, we'll let, okay. Well. So, Well, let me just say blessings on your wondrous uh, work here in your ministry. And we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.